Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Have you ever wished that you had a direct line to your pediatrician to ask all the questions that constantly crop up while parenting? We sure have. That's why we launched the Bites of Health podcast. Every morning, we'll answer a commonly asked pediatric question in five minutes or less. You can tune in while you're making your second cup of coffee or from the school drop-off line. So be sure to tune in to Bites of Health, streaming now. Hello, well, welcome to Emotional Badass, where Moxie meets Mindful. I'm Nikki Eisenhower, life coach and psychotherapist, and your host. And on today's episode, I'm discussing poverty, judgment, and crisis. Hello. Hello. I hope you're doing well out there. I've been asked to speak on poverty and what a big topic. It's overwhelming to think about the economy through the end of this year and beyond and overwhelming to think about how I can address something so big as poverty. It's left me thinking, who really talks about these things? I, I think it's a real sticky issue to talk about because if you have enough, maybe we feel like we don't have the right to talk about poverty. And maybe the people that talk about poverty are more like scientists who study the data on poverty instead of maybe more people who have experienced it. So I'm asking for some grace. I might be all over the place in this episode and maybe some of you can come to our next live stream on Patreon and ask some questions if you have some from this episode to help me better speak on poverty in the future. There's only one thing that I've ever read. It was a healing trauma book and I wish I could remember the author to give credit, but it was a very long time ago and there are so many books with similar titles now, I can't be sure. But it was one thing that I read, one little passage over a decade ago It just said very boldly that if you were a trauma survivor, to try to make money because healing and having less stress in our modern society means having money. It costs money to have less stress in this life. I was so relieved I had to put down the book and cry. I was so broke and barely getting by at the time. And that had been the story since I was very small. It was validating of how hard it was for someone to be dealing with intense childhood trauma and also figure out how to pull the money together just to live, but then to get the additional help I knew I needed. It felt like an uphill battle of epic proportions. So I want to start with describing what I think poverty does to sensitive people what it did to me and for me, because there are positives and there are negatives. And this list is in no particular order. 
as a child, realizing that we rarely had enough money and were always sort of scraping by, it made me feel less than. And I believe a big part of starting to compare myself with other people, comparison that left me feeling less than, started because of poverty. That I would look at some of my relatives who had enough money and some of my cousins and friends who definitely had enough and more than enough and compare obsessively hair and shoes and the kind of glasses that I had, clothing, my book bag. I didn't get to go on vacations like other people did. It made me envious and confused. It made me miss out on things. And I felt incredibly lonely within that missing out. I remember field trips that cost sometimes $3.50, that I wasn't allowed to go on because we didn't have it and would have to sit in the school. As I started getting closer to about nine and 10 years old, I started asking questions that my parents didn't like. Like I wanted to know why my mom had money for cigarettes because one pack of cigarettes cost more than a field trip. And so when I would ask that question, well, could you not get one pack of cigarettes so I could go on the field trip? which made such perfect sense to me as a small child. But that question wasn't received well, and that question compounded my feelings because the messages that I got told when I would ask questions like that was, no, you don't understand. Stop it. You just have to deal with it. I didn't know how to deal with it. And the adults around me didn't understand or weren't interested in understanding that I was desperately trying to ask how to cope with it and no one was telling me how to cope. I felt ashamed and layers of shame. Shame about not having enough, not being the same as we do as children in terms of our clothing or being able to go to a concert or a trip. But then I'd feel ashamed of feeling ashamed because my extended family, they were blue collar workers and everyone worked really, really hard. Lots of pull yourself up by the bootstraps. And I didn't want to feel ashamed. So ashamed about feeling ashamed. In terms of making a purchase, I'd really swing emotionally. Either feeling like, screw it, no, or yes, I deserve it. Feeling punished by the universe. Almost victimized if I did spend because I felt so guilty If I spent on anything that wasn't a necessity, like food or a bill. I've talked before on the show about how painful it is for me to say a lie, and that's been true since I was born. But because of poverty, it made me lie. I lied. I have a very simple memory in my head of an early boyfriend. And when you listen to me talk about past relationships other than my current one with Chris, I am intentionally vague on the show to protect their privacy. And so if you hear me say husband or boyfriend or kind of muck up some timelines so that people can't really figure out who I'm talking about, that's what I'm doing. But that's the only thing I'm sort of fudging. But I remember a boyfriend way back, I think I was 18. And yes, I was smoking cigarettes at the time. And he just nonchalantly asked me to pick up a pack of cigarettes. This was back when cigarettes were barely three bucks. 
and just very nonchalantly asked me to pick up a pack of cigarettes because I was going to his house. And I said, oh, oh yeah, sure. I cried the whole way there because I was so ashamed that I didn't have $3. I had put about 75 cents of gas in my car with quarters to be able to get to his house. So he went, oh, you got me cigarettes? And I said, oh, no, I forgot. I still remember that to this day. It's 21 years later. I didn't know how to say I don't have it or how to feel enough self-worth to be able to stand in that truth. I'd feel shut down and maybe even like a bad person, like something was wrong with the questions I was asking, but I couldn't figure out what. I watched some of my extended family members who had money and who did some pretty moneyed things with me. Like I had a set of grandparents that took me to Disney World when I was five and flew me first class. That was wild and crazy, especially back in 1985. I think flying was still kind of fancy. And I think I got to walk up into the cockpit and there weren't a lot of rules. And I remember coming from that and asking very innocently, five years old, you know, like why my parents and my grandparents didn't didn't want to get in a plane like that and go places that way. And it was never explained to me well. It was, well, they have money and we don't, with a lot of vibe behind it. Vibe I couldn't understand back then. It would have benefited immensely from someone explaining to me that different families have different incomes, different skills, and different expenses. And everybody in the world is trying to make some money and everybody makes a different amount. That would have been an explanation without vibe underneath, without passive aggressive envy. I didn't understand that some of the adults in my family were very jealous of the other people in my family. And they made me feel badly about liking those things that were different than at my home. Of course I liked and was excited by flying first class. And I didn't understand why I felt badly about that. Guilty. Shameful. It was the vibes that I got of jealousy instead of happiness. My family wasn't happy for me to experience that. They were envious. And so they shamed me. I was told a lot to be grateful for what I had. But in a way that didn't feel light and bright and honest, in the way that I am grateful for everything that I have now, it didn't feel like a pure message and it wasn't modeled for me to be grateful for those things. It felt like a message of if you aren't grateful, then you are ungrateful, which might as well mean evil and worthless. You're unworthy to receive and there's something wrong. There's something wrong with me for having the drive to want more. And not just want more stuff, but I wanted more opportunity. I was born with a driven personality. I wanted to learn how to be one of those people that made enough money to make choices to take vacations, to take breaks, and to enjoy life versus work to the bone and barely get by. I think my family was very insulted that I wanted a different way of life from a young age because I saw a different way of life. And I think in the poverty conversation and the poverty dilemma, that's what we're not doing. 
how do people know to reach for something different and how to reach for something different if they're only surrounded by poverty and poverty in terms of the feelings, the mindset, and even the resentments of people with more. So I think the way that we do things, the way that we don't do things, contributes to a big divide between wealthy and poor in this country. I didn't understand any of this until I studied law of attraction, law of abundance, till I studied shame and the ego. I have an understanding now that I didn't have growing up about the unresolved continued trauma of our poverty mindset. I lived years with my grandparents and my grandmother in particular had survived the depression. And so everything was sense of lack, so much sense of lack that there is not enough and there never will be. Poverty normalizes intense struggle and that that's all life is if you don't see something else. And often in these family systems, it was true in mine, it's true in many, that to be considered a good person, you must be in intense struggle or you're kind of princessy or lazy or weak. There's a lot of pride in the hard work that can happen in a family with poverty or not. Dysfunction lives at the poles and tends to swing. For me, growing up in poverty made every single life hiccup life-threatening. And maybe that's something that people with more struggle to understand about people with less when it comes to money. Early in my 20s, I had a police officer pull me over, and he wrote me a ticket for some tag on the car that was out of date. And before I could even get like drive through the parish. We have parishes in Louisiana, not counties. But before I could even drive through the parish to get back to my parish to be able to even go to the DMV to handle it, I got pulled over again by a different cop. And I explained, I showed him the ticket. I had just gotten a ticket a few hours ago. I hadn't been back home yet. And he laughed at me and wrote me a ticket. Said, that's in another parish. I had actually driven through two and was going back to mine. And so he wrote me a ticket for his parish, too. Those officers were doing their job. They had every right to give me those tickets, didn't they? I had suicidal thoughts because of that. I was also in an abusive relationship at the time and terrified of the shaming I would hear about how ridiculous and stupid it was to have gotten two tickets in the same day. I was a full-time student and a full-time waitress back then. I was burning it at both ends. I was raw. I was exhausted. I was at peak PTSD. I'm naming this in this episode because I do have concerns about what's happening with the economy and what will happen. And we need to start the conversation of understanding that when people do not have enough, it is terrifying. And if you resonate with what I'm saying, if you've been there before, if you're scared of being there again or for the first time, I want you to know that it's figureoutable, especially when it feels like it's not. Don't let the suicidal ideation gremlin screw with your head and make you give up. There are ways out that you can't see when that depression gremlin is on your shoulder. And fear has us in a mode of often looking at worst case scenario 
instead of possibility. And if you've had a lot of hard stuff happen, it can be very hard to lean into, especially if you're young, to lean into things could get better for me. That's hard to feel and connect with when so much has been so hard. So if you can't believe that for your own life right now, I can believe it for you. And you can come back here and listen to it again and again and again until that gremlin gets off your shoulder. Not having enough can feel very trapped. And we are going to have to see what unfolds economically in the next three, six, nine, and 12 months. I'm going to name something publicly that I don't think I have before and never thought I would. But I'm a truth speaker. And I can't not share this because I can teach from it. (laughs) And I hope there's a little side, little mini lesson in this episode that comes across as not caring what other people think has to be a practice when we're highly sensitive. And we do this daily and we do this continuously to live an authentic life that we're called to live. And sometimes by living authentically, we're sort of inviting, though we don't want to invite it, the judgment of others. And this is kind of for the therapists that are listening, because this is a very real thing. And I'm not sure how many people really admit this or talk about this, but I know people admit this to me once they're working with me, that it can feel truly awful and like a shame hurdle that you can't figure out how to cross. It's bizarre and unsettling, and it's hard to trust when you're sitting across from a therapist and you start to share your life story. And your experience, you know, some of us have life experience that's sort of uh, 31 flavors. And it's very hard to sit down with a therapist that seems to have just the flavor of vanilla. And some therapists that I would call vanilla, yes, that's my judgment, handle this really great and hold beautiful space for people, even though they don't share similar experiences. Some people have the gift and the ability to be able to do that and do it well. But a lot of times you don't. It was really terrifying to me to share some of the details of my life with therapists that frankly could not handle it. And as an empath, I could feel them not being able to handle it. And that is terrifying therapists to a childhood trauma survivor. It's terrifying because you're the person that we pay to understand us. So if I'm paying you and you can't understand me either and you think what I'm saying is weird and crazy, then I don't have anywhere else to go with my story. And I feel more of a freak than the second I walked in. What I'm sharing with you comes from inspiration from a friend who texted me a few weeks ago and said, I swallowed my pride. I humbled myself and I applied to stock groceries at the grocery store. She lost two side gigs and all income from the business she had been growing, a business that was gaining beautiful momentum. And she's a newer friend. So immediately I said, grocery store people are heroes right now. So are delivery people. You're a hero. And I said, please, after Katrina, when I couldn't get work, I cocktailed at a strip club. And I resist making this distinction, but again, I'm a true speaker. I resist in the distinction of, hey, I cocktailed at the strip club because that's what I did. Because I don't want that to come across as if there is something shameful about doing the dancing. And that is a whole other big giant feminist topic 
that I can get into later or in the live stream. And that's the thing about life experience, guys. Things are not how you think they are until you experience them a lot of the time. The truth is, I respected the hell out of the women I saw dancing there. A lot of them owned their own businesses. A lot of them were coming in one or two nights a week just to get enough cash to get their businesses off the ground. I was impressed. So strip clubs are, in some ways, exactly what you judge them to be. And they are not. The women in that club were very sweet to me and very kind. It was one of the least catty atmospheres I've ever worked in. I was never inappropriately hit on or touched. My job was to just chat with lonely guys that came in. And what I want to do, because I know many of you will be facing taking jobs that you feel like are beneath you and doing things that you need to do to get by. And I'm certainly not saying march down to the strip club and get a job because they're all not all like the one I landed in. But I'm saying there's opportunity for you to get straight with your own morals instead of society's. And I'm going to give the script that I wish someone would have given me and that I wish I would have given myself back then. And if this episode isn't quite up your alley, I'm sure many of us are going to know people that are in this struggle. And maybe this is why you're hearing this today, to pass it on to somebody else. So here we go. Okay, so here you are. You've got judgments and fears, worth-killing vibes, tormenting you. Look at yourself. Look at the situation. How dare you be down on yourself for being a hustler, for finding a way to feed, clothe, and house yourself. There are no white knights. You are your own white knight. You can and are doing what needs doing. This was not the plan, not the plan at all. This is not your new normal. This is not where you live, it's not where you stay, and it's not where you have to wind up. This is a lily pad. It's a hopping point. It's okay to hop to this lily pad and look for the next better lily pad. There are always more lily pads forming, even when we can't see them and don't know where they are yet. Your worth is unchangeable. Do you hear me? Your worth cannot change. Your worth is not contingent on what you do. Your worth is fixed. It is worthwhile. You are worthwhile. Always have been, always will be, no matter what. This is a time to block others' judgment. Let it go. This is a time to block your own judgment. Let it go. Other people aren't you. They haven't walked your path. The right people will understand you and you'll never be enough for the wrong people. No forward move onto a lily pad is ever a backwards move. There is only forward. I'm so proud of you for taking what you could get in a crisis situation. I'm so proud of you figuring out a path and continuing and not giving into the gremlins and the suicidal chatter or to society's dysfunctional ego issues of certain things being beneath us. One day in the future, you will look back on this time and realize that this struggle taught you things like what you're truly made of, that you were stronger than you feel. And capable beyond what we know in any given moment. 
and you didn't let a crisis drown you. That will define you as someone who doesn't give up when it really counts. Sometimes in life, these crisis moments are there to help us build the muscles to help us later. And we can't know that in the moment. You'll be stronger in the future, even if that's hard to believe right now. Please love yourself through this. Please hold space for yourself. Please let go of adding to your own struggle with over-questioning and over-stressing. Please commit to offering yourself a strong and healthy good enough. Please trust that those next lily pads will inevitably grow and you will inevitably find them. And you will be ready to leap at exactly the right time. You are a peaceful warrior. You are a survivor. And if you don't know it yet, you will in the future. Because you are and have always been an emotional badass. I hope there's something in this episode for you. I want to thank our supporters at Patreon. We can't do the show without you. We send out light and love to all of you. Thank you, Christopher C. Thank you, Samantha. Thank you, Megan E., Barbara Y., Susie, Lauren K. Thank you, Kino and Karen P., Jodell T and Ariana, thank you, Brooke M and Melissa C, Michelle Zabo, thank you, and Wendy F. Our next goal is hitting 250 patrons. We have about 125 to go. When we hit that goal, we're going to have another job for somebody to help with production on this podcast. I don't know how and I don't know when. But I'm trusting that that lily pad is growing right now. When you join the Patreon, we have exclusive episodes. We have soul care handouts. We have monthly live streams. We have a behind the scenes tier. And now for anyone who wants it, we have been doing pandemic pep talks for free. So if you are someone who is in poverty or is struggling because of what has happened, please know that you can still come there and we want you, we have space for you and we have offerings for you. You count and you matter and you can change your situation. And I hope this episode helps you connect with that. There were times in my life where I never thought I would get to financially okay. All you got to do is keep putting one foot in front of the other, keep practicing resiliency and make the smartest decisions you can as you can, and things will shift even when they feel like they won't. It is a choice to put our faith in that. And we do that to take care of our mental health and we do that to take care of our bodies. Every single thing in this life comes down to some kind of mental choice, doesn't it? We are all stronger than we feel in our darkest moments. I'm sending out hope and a huge hug to all of you. Take care of yourselves and each other, and I'll see you next time. I'm an emotional badass, you're an emotional badass, and together we are where Moxie meets Mindful. Light and love. Bye-bye. <laughs>